Hello, this is Ed Cohen, your broadcast host on Global Radio Talk Show, a broadcast service of globalbusinessnews.net. Coming to you today from Washington, D.C. area and here in San Diego, California. Our very special guest today is relocation industry veteran, Mr. Matt Burns, who's now in his own enterprise as expert consultant on international HR and mobile employees. Matt's background includes 12 years with Lockheed Martin and several additional years with the U.S. State Department. Very well spoken and very well regarded in Washington and around the world. Let's welcome Mr. Matt Burns. Thank you, Ed. I appreciate it. As you noted in business for myself now, Hello International HR Consulting, and I'm working with clients to help them improve their programs, largely global mobility programs, set up assignments for um, expats if they need one, or helping them improve their policies, strengthen their processes, or go out and uh, get suppliers, partners that they need to uh, be successful. So the name of the company again is Tulo, T-U-L-O, is that right? Yeah, Tello International HR. It's a town in Ireland that my great-grandfather emigrated from uh, over 100 years ago, and he was the first but hardly the, the last person in the family that we know of that went abroad to seek his fortune. Oh, good. Well, thanks very much for sharing that information. Uh, so tell us uh, once again now, if you could zero in uh, briefly on exactly what Tello International does? Working with clients to help them uh, improve their program. And, you know, really, um, I'm using the expertise that I developed over the, the 26 years with the State Department as a diplomat and then uh, the 12 years at, at Lockheed Martin, which heavily focused on global mobility to, uh, you know, understand what their needs are and then tailor a solution that will help them uh, get better. All right. So now you're not an outsource. You are a consultant. Is that correct? That's right. Yes. Yeah. I'm. I'm not actually, um, you know, doing the fishing for them. I'm. I'm focused on trying to teach them to fish. So uh, in your years, uh, particularly with Lockheed, with regard to vendor management, and in, in other words, the people who you, the companies and people you outsourced services to, I guess. So tell us what your requirements were and still are with regard to vendor management. Well, you know, a lot of people in the area of vendor management focus on what the contract terms and conditions are. And if you go to a lot of sessions, they immediately gravitate towards, you know, what does the contract say? And and that's important. Contracts are something that we obviously need, but the contract really focuses on what happens if things go wrong. And I would much rather focus, and I think that that organizations get a lot more benefit when they focus on how can we make things better. And so with the approach to contract management, it's really about building a a relationship. And that starts with, with getting to know each other. So, you know, when I was at Lockheed Martin, and earlier when I was with the State Department, because, you know, we outsourced uh, uh, quite a few services in the State Department as well, 
I learned that it was very important to share a lot about what we were trying to accomplish uh, so that our partners understood where we were going and, and could help us get there. And then also understanding what you know their needs were and what value they would get out of the relationship. And it made for a, a much more positive experience and, and really helped us improve our, our outcomes. Now, just as an aside here, when the TV show Madam Secretary was playing, did you watch that? No, I didn't. I mean, I've heard from a number of people that that did watch it and and enjoyed it, but you know, I was usually so focused on on what I was doing and a, a lot of the calls that I would have with with Asia or Australia took place in the evening. So, um it didn't make for very consistent TV viewing. Okay, got it. Well, I watched that show. I, I I just thought the writing was terrific. Back to reality here in vendor management. Today, it's different. There's a new workforce, in other words, millennials and and others, and they're using technology. But it's the same. It's the same job function, though, isn't it? Well, I mean, technology obviously can can help a lot, and I think there's a lot of ways to. To leverage technology, I mean, for example, you know, listening to to both vendors and clients is really important, and technology offers some interesting ways to get feedback. I mean, it's you go online today and and buy something, and very quickly you get either an offer to participate in a short uh, survey of the experience afterwards, or you'll uh, you'll get a message or something um, that'll come across your screen asking you to answer a few questions that provide folks with feedback. And I think technology can can offer a lot in terms of learning, um, you know, about things. But at the end of the day, it, regardless of what generation you're from, you know, we're all people, and you know the relationships, the trust uh, don't come from technology. It comes from from people who get to know each other. So one of the things that that I made an effort to do at, at Lockheed Martin, and and certainly you know recommend to others, is that I would meet regularly with with each of my partners, and I would make a real effort to do it home and away. So we would alternate between their location and. And mine. And when you're working with someone who's in another country, that that can be a real effort. But I would find that if I met them on their turf, I got a chance to learn a lot more about them, and you know, would try to make sure that when they came to visit us, that we not only talked about some of the business things, but we would talk about where the program was going, and and give them an opportunity to meet more of the people on our team um, that they might not get a chance to meet any other way. Okay, thank you for that. So today's expats are generally, not always, but generally younger than, say, 10 years ago. And they're very tech-oriented. So would you agree that the tech, in other words, the communications capability, has improved engagement? Well, I mean, I think it's changed engagement. There are lots of things that technology offers that are certainly different from when I made my first expat assignment back in the late 70s and would be days before we could get a newspaper uh, that would give us information about what was going on outside of the, the country. Nowadays, you can get an update almost instantly and you can reach out to people, assuming they're awake, that are on the other side of the world. But 
at the same time, while their technology offers what I think somebody would describe as the elements of communication, a lot of times it's it's only a small piece. When humans communicate to each other face-to-face, there's an awful lot of non-text that's taking place where I get information from how somebody stands or sits, how they look, the tone of their voice and things like that. And you don't get that in a lot of the tweets and things like that. And so there's challenges to some of the technology and how we use it. And so the challenge for somebody in global mobility that is communicating with people all over the world is to figure out how to to use that technology well so that you get the benefits while also you know building something in so that you can can build the relationship and and not suffer from some of the shortcomings of technology so listening to clients is important of course so how do you determine what the most important needs are just asking is there another way well no i mean that's that's a really good point ed because it, you know determining the most important needs when somebody in global mobility has a you know a lot of different clients i think is is one of the elements of of what i call the art of global mobility we can use technology to get a lot of information but all that is is data and you know what's really key is sifting through all of the data and coming up with the key things that somebody's going to going to focus on in order to to make the program better. And so, you know, when I was at Lockheed Martin, we would do an annual customer satisfaction survey as well as getting out and trying to, you know, to meet people on their turf. And that's something I did in the government as well, was to get out and, and try to talk to people in, in their environment, in their location. And that sends a message that, you know, you care about them if you're making the effort to fly however far it is to, uh, to actually see them and experience for a, a short time some of their daily reality. We would run a, an annual customer satisfaction survey, uh, partly because we wanted to have something that was anonymous, that was something we could do over and over again, so it was repeatable, that we could measure, and that it was consistent. We would do it every year. We would take the results from that and then sit down with our our supplier partners, with our internal partners, the team, and, and we'd go through the results um, and talk about you know, what we were hearing and what we were seeing from the different methods of communication that supplemented the survey. And we would pick some priorities and and set on them. And then we would communicate those back out to our different customer sets to let them know, A, we heard them, and B, here's what we're going to focus on. And then we would give them regular updates throughout the year as to how we were doing. And at the end of the year, just before we did the the next survey would give them sort of a, an annual summary of, okay, here's what we accomplished, um, here's what we heard, here's what we did, and here's what the results were. And that would then lead into uh, the the next survey where we would ask them for their feedback and give us some thoughts about what we needed to focus on for the following year. Let's talk about the State Department for a moment. What did you do there? Well, I was a foreign service officer in the State Department, and one of the the great things about being a foreign service officer is what you do changes um, a lot. And so there was, you know, one assignment when I was working on consular affairs. There was another assignment where I was working 
um, as a general services officer, but I did a bunch of things in security. Um, there was another assignment where, you know, I was in charge of, of the management, but um, I'd be off covering uh, political events. Um, and when I was in Rome, I was in charge of, of a huge art collection, um, which was something that I had never really expected to be in charge of. But I, I learned an awful lot about sculpture and paintings and how you preserve them. And, and it just was fascinating. So what do you mean by art collection? Inside the U.S. Embassy or, or somewhere else? No, it was, uh, well, it was inside the U.S. Embassy, inside the ambassador's residence. There was an awful lot of, of art that was um, in the embassy uh, when we bought it from the Italian government, um, you know, back right after World War I. I'm sorry, after World War II. And so, it, you know, I mean, the Italians took some of the best pieces and put them in museums. They had over a hundred statues in the uh, in the embassy in the ambassador's residence, um, and you know it's a formidable collection. There's a, the U.S. government's put out a book on the uh, the art collection at the um, the U.S. embassy, and um, it's it's really it was a joy to work there every day. Matt, I had no idea about this. What would that book be called? Oh, I don't remember off the top of my head. But I'm sure that the State Department Office of, of Foreign Buildings or Overseas Buildings has uh, has a copy of it. And um, I don't know, you might even be able to get it on Amazon. Oh, interesting. Well, that's fascinating. <laughs> okay, let's um, talk a little bit deeper here and get into specifics about, unfortunately, today, security and terrorism and threats, kidnapping, extortion. What role is duty of care? What is the extent of corporate responsibility for employees and family on assignment? What's the extent of the duty of care? The duty of care is something where, you know, it's, it's a shared responsibility. The corporation has a certain amount of responsibility to prepare people when they they send them into, you know, international locations, and and people have uh, a responsibility to, you know, pay attention to what's going on around them as well. I mean, I think it's it's pretty hard these days to, um, you know, predict where something is is going to happen. I think one of the the benefits of technology is that we now have a much more comprehensive understanding of what's happening around the world. Um, there are some events like hurricanes where, um, you know, you get advance notice that something's coming. Uh, you know, there are other things like, you know, tragedies in an airport that, um, you know, we may not have an awful lot of advance notice, although, you know, even with hurricanes, they don't always uh, follow the track that we think they're going to take. And we saw with Irma that it, it, you know, it changed and and didn't hit, um, you know, some locations as hard as had been feared and managed to, to hit other locations where, you know, they weren't, it wasn't expected to go. So, um, you know, there's an awful lot of uncertainty in life and, and both companies and, you know, assignees and, and their families have a responsibility to, to 
pay attention and, and use the training that, that is available and that is given to employees and their families uh, and, and use it well. Once a crisis starts, it's a lot about communications to um, alleviate or mitigate some fear elements as well as providing service, but please do continue. The communication is is really a, an, a result. Uh, it's, it's not the sort of thing where um, it, it's going to happen just by magic. Uh, the, the shared risks in, in duty of care, um, I like many of the, the facets of globe mobility where it's shared responsibility, but the shared risks um, really can be best addressed when one has a, um, a formal program that gets ready uh, long in advance of, of actually anything really happening. So when the partnerships are strong, when there's a lot of planning, um, when people practice this sort of stuff, um, you know, you, you look at, at any sports team, um, they don't go out onto the field uh, and do the plays for the first time in front of uh, the crowds and against uh, whoever their opponent is. Uh, they, they go through an awful lot of practice these days almost year-round to get ready. And companies and employees on assignment need to do the same thing. They need to practice. Um, and the State Department was and Lockheed Martin were very, very good at having lots of practice so that when something does happen, um, your partnerships are strong. It's easier to um, communicate with people because they, they have a better expectation of what's coming. And then, as you so correctly pointed out, I mean, it is important to get people information um, in a structured way and so that they have information they can rely on. And that's probably one of the hardest things because in the middle of a crisis, there's a lot of things going on and it can be very confusing. And it's hard to tell what's rumor and what's fact. And that's why, again, I, I think strong relationships and practicing them is, is important because uh, nothing really will test the, the bonds of the team quite like uh, a, a crisis will. Let's talk about crisis and let's just say the, the hurricane or um, the, uh, the train bombing in London recently just as an example, not to mention the Belgium airport thing. So it's communication. Sometimes cell phones don't work. Sometimes it's hard to reach people. It's hard to get attention. So is there a way to prepare to train for panic or imminent danger or escape what not to do as well as what to do? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of training. Lockheed Martin has a great training program, um, one of the best ones I've seen. The State Department does a very good job of, of training its people. Uh, and a lot of it is focused on uh, sheltering in place, finding a, a safe place where you can get shelter, um, stay in one place, while things are sorting themselves out. Um, you know, in the middle of a crisis, uh, you're right, cell phones, uh, systems frequently crash because everybody's all trying to use them all at once and it overloads the system. Or, you know, it could be that, um, you know, the power goes out and the cell phones stop working and things like that. 
So in the immediate instance of a crisis, getting word out to people and hearing from people can be very, very difficult. Um, but, you know, that's why somebody needs to shelter in place. And then you go into the whole, um, you know, rescue and then recovery that you hear people talking about from FEMA. Um, and that's a very established approach to uh, to a crisis. And it, it does work. It seems like with the people in U.S. Virgin Islands in particular, and of course, even parts of Florida and and still in Houston, that after uh, the deluge <laughs> and the wind, people still don't have running water. So that's a health hazard, not to mention all the other related issues. So this kind of thing tends to break down personal strength and you know, belief in God or belief in something to take care of people only goes so far. I mean, it's everlasting and hopefully it works and you have to have faith that it will. But taking care of people on the ground to stay healthy, to stay strong when employed by a company, isn't that the role of the corporation to take care of the people? Well, I mean, let's face it, there's there's limits to what any organization can do. And I mean, when you start talking about the tragedy in, in a lot of the Caribbean islands or in certain neighborhoods in Houston or, or the Florida Keys, um, I mean, when your your basic infrastructure has been wiped out by something dramatic like an earthquake or, or a hurricane, um, you know, everybody's ability to respond or, is limited. And so, you know, a lot of the training that, that organizations give people in advance is, and certainly if anybody's paying attention to the Red Cross, I mean, they they have uh, very good guidance about what everybody needs to have to equip yourself to uh, stay in place and in the middle of the situation and having supplies of, you know, canned food. Uh, that won't spoil as easily, uh, you know, potable water to, to you know, help tide you over. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, when you have the kind of destruction that you see after a Category 5 uh, hurricane, um, it, you know, there's going to be uh, really bad situations for people, um, you know, for quite some time. So uh, I don't know, even know what to say uh, right now because it's sort of far inspiring and it takes my breath away, really, because there's so many people who are having problems right now. And, and I mean, today for our listeners is September 19, 2017. There's more hurricanes coming and who knows what's going to happen uh, geopolitically. So in certain areas. So with companies global and going global, it involves expats. It involves family. Do satellite phones work better than regular cell phones? Uh, would you suggest companies look into providing first responder type communications in addition to a normal uh, smartphone? Yeah, I mean, satellite phones uh, really, I mean, they're not cheap, um, but for first responders, for um, you know, people in situations that we can label in advance as, as risky, um, there there are certainly some definite advantages to those. Um, now, it, you know, the challenge, I think, for a lot of us in, 
the global mobility space is that, um, you know, as I said before, while hurricanes, you know, we frequently know about them well in advance, um, you know, there's an awful lot of other incidents, um, some of them medical, some of them um, terrorist-related that, you know, happen in places um, that we're not expecting um, or that aren't likely and often with little notice. And, um, you know, that's where you need to have people that can, um, you know, fly in um, or, um, you know, drive in if, if you've got uh, geographic land connectivity um, and, and bring in some assets to those folks to, um, to again, help, um, you know, get into the, um, you know, the rescue and then the recovery as soon as possible. Well, thank you, Matt. As we come to a close in the next few minutes, can I ask you to think back to one situation when you were with Lockheed Martin and it was a drastic or dangerous situation? You know, in other words, tell us a story for a couple of minutes here. Uh, can you describe that situation and and, you know, how you dealt with it? or how you advised the corporation to deal with it? Well, I mean, there was one situation where we had a business trip to uh, to Israel in, uh, I think it was July of uh, 2014. And, um, you know, at that point, there were a lot of, um, you know, Hamas was launching a lot of rockets on um, Tel Aviv and other parts of Israel. And so before we went, I mean, I had, regular and and some very lengthy conversations with our our security team which is is top notch um getting their um feedback on um you know the situation on the ground and uh you know the risk that we might be at and you know they went over again the things that we needed to do in in order to take responsibility for ourselves and we ultimately decided that you know we needed to take the trip, and we went. Um, I mean, we had one meeting um, in um, a, you know a, a an air raid shelter uh, because uh, you know there was a, a siren about an incoming missile. Um, but it, you know, a lot of it was about um, understanding what you had to do in in order to, uh, to keep yourself safe and and still accomplish the mission and. Um, you know, we did accomplish the mission, and obviously I'm still here, so we kept ourselves safe, too. Well, that's an interesting story, and I thank you very much for sharing that. We've been talking with Matt Burns, who's Managing Director of Tulo. And once again, tell us what Tulo is into today. Sure. Not too long ago, I, I helped a, uh, an organization that was planning their, their first international assignment. Uh, and that was a lot of fun because I was able to work with someone who is just getting their their feet wet, if you will, in the international space. And I also have been working with a, a large Fortune 500 company uh, that is bringing in a new technology system to uh, help their uh, global mobility team in a number of countries uh, work more effectively together and provide better service for their expats. So, you know, there one is is a, a newer program, one is more established, but um, it's it's a lot of fun to to work with people and and help them understand what their challenges are and then find solutions to meet them. So, what would you like to be doing um, six months from now? Give us an idea of uh, the kinds of work 
kinds of projects you're thinking about for the new year 2018? Well, I mean, the, the biggest challenge for me is finding some additional clients. But if I can find somebody that has problems that, that I can help them with using the experience that I've built up over the years and get them so they're in a much better space, that for me is is what I get a lot of satisfaction out of. It's It's just being able to to go into a situation like, you know, I did when I got to a new posting in the State Department or I got a new job at Lockheed Martin and try to take the, the world as you see it and make it a little bit better so that when you leave, it's a, it's a better place. And um, I think if all of us do that, the world will be better off. So Matt Burns is going to be a guest at the Duty of Care conference in Washington, D.C. area on October 26 and 7 inside the global business session on October 26 at 4 p.m. And that's happening at the Crystal City Marriott Hotel in Arlington, Virginia, just outside DC downtown. And we're gonna be talking about duty of care as it relates to expats and families and today's geopolitical environment with cyber threats and information exchanges Matt, I thank you very much for willing to do that duty of care conference in Washington area, October 26th with us. And I thank you for being our guest today on Global Radio Talk Show. Thank you, Ed. Global Radio Talk Show is a broadcast service of globalbusinessnews.net. So now this is Ed Cohen, uh, your broadcast host, signing off from San Diego's Global Radio Talk Show. Thank you. Around the world with Global Radio Talk Show, signing off. I think to myself, what a wonderful